It's a great pleasure for me to be here. Uh, I particularly like the sort of diverse audience we have and that people from the arts are here, which I usually admire more than my sociology colleagues. Uh, um, I do come from Austria. I studied in Vienna, so you can ask me questions in German too or require, interrupt and require that I explain something in um, a second language. Uh, my task here today is to, um, to delve more deeply into the financial markets and the technosphere they constitute. We've done that a bit yesterday, uh, but I think we have more time today, so I'd like to take you uh, through uh, a, a series of developments in these markets and uh, the developing technosphere that resulted from these developments. Um, I should like to say in the beginning that when Deepesh Chakrabarti said uh, most of our freedoms are energy intensive, uh, one can also say that most of our freedoms are credit intensive and financial markets are really about credits. They are not like primary markets about production and consumption but about mobilizing credit for production and consumption, for example, also for the Industrial Revolution. There's historical, interesting historical evidence which uh, seems to suggest that there was a rise in credit availability through financial markets before the uh, main onslaught of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Keynes was one of the economists who stressed that credit comes first. And, and then comes production, and then comes saving, and then comes a replenishment of credit. But if you don't have credit, you have no production. So this is what financial markets are about. Uh, they are also uh, a very symbolic, uh, abstract universe, so they are not of extracting or uh, uh, bringing pollution to the environment directly in a literal sense. They may do that indirectly but they are a universe that completely runs on uh, symbolic messages, if you wish. Uh, and so the uh, sort of pollution they create is indirect through the damage they may do to economies and the consequences of that. So let's look at what I have looked at. Uh, let me say, give you two slides at least so that you see what I looked at. That's the, especially the foreign exchange markets. Uh, or currency market, which is the largest, by far the largest market worldwide, uh, with a turnover every day of $5.3 uh, trillion. These are in German billionen, not trillionen, but nonetheless. And you also see that it hardly suffered, if at all, from the financial crisis. It was also not the cause of the financial crisis, which was mortgage-related, uh, uh, it was not the cause of the financial crisis. It's a market that's an over-the-counter market that is mainly, with the exception of some futures, not conducted through or with the help of exchanges. Person, uh, it has never been in these exchanges. Over-the-counter means it's traded on the trading floors of big bank who trade across space. Uh, since it's currencies, it's always one currency against another. It's inherently transnational, it's inherently global, if you wish, but it wasn't always global, literally. However, it has become so. 
So that's the sort of uh, trading that goes on. You also see that firms like Reuters are involved in actually um, um, uh, assembling the market and putting it on screen. So what I will talk about uh, is three disruptive technologies, or if you wish, a technosphere that developed in three stages to where we are uh, today. I will also talk about the temporal the time effects of these disruptive technologies. Technologies are not just technological. There's the question what analytic, uh, um, what analytic dimensions they produce, what analytic changes they produce, and I think one of the changes these markets, these technological uh, inventions produced is temporal effects, and they are quite important because time is a fundamental aspect of social life. Uh, I will also talk about global synchronization and to some degree desynchronization, in particular in relation to the second stage and also the synchronization between body and market. You've seen something like that in the, uh, what Oliver just showed, that sort of synchronization between the trader and the market, uh, but uh, also on a different level various synchronizations. I'll talk about time moving to the center, non-human time, analytic time, and time becoming um, an object of competitive struggles. And I will bring up some cultural aspects, which I think are also important and are usually uh, not uh, directly addressed when we, uh, particularly when we talk about the economy, which we tend to see in instrumental terms. So what are the three transitions and disruptive technologies? I call the first disruptive technology streamers, um, uh, and I mean the ticker. I will show you in, in a moment the picture of the ticker. Uh, streamers because they started to stream the market. The market became a, a beginning flow and a flow experience. And there's also a beginning regime of attention, meaning you started to pay attention to what comes out of the ticker. Uh, then the second stage is the stage of scopes, then you have computer screens uh, and you get full temporalization. You also get full informationalization, meaning everything that's traded is also information, not just money, not just derivatives or something like that, but information. You get a fully global market that has that Heideggerian for the philosophers here, wholeness. Uh, in the sense that um, everything that's relevant is on screen and is related to the market. Uh, that, that has existential consequences. And then you get the algorithmic stage beginning uh, around 2000, really 2005 only, so we are very, it's a very young stage, but it's fully in bloom now. Uh, and that brings up new issues and new questions, although the scopes, the screens remain in place, particularly new dimensions of speed, but also complete changes of the profession. So this is what the ticker originally looked like. It's essentially a cross between a printer and a telegraph. Uh, and the printer spits out a piece of tape that comes out of it all the time. Uh, and that piece of tape, the ticker tape, just has three pieces of information. It had the name of a security, of a, an, an, a stock, for example, uh, and an aktie. It had the price and it had the quantity, nothing but that. These 
elements at the core of these financial markets. So you had them on there. But the ticker was not something with which you could trade. It was a historical thing. It showed you what had happened in the market. However, having this present across space, because what happened is that like with a telegraph, a telegraph sends messages across space, uh, the, 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 the places that had the ticker saw the same information pretty much at the same time. They saw how the market had evolved, how much had been traded at what price of what security, for example. If you sat in New York, you would see what happened in Boston, as you would see what happened in New York, and later on, as you would see what happened in London. Uh, and you can see from people who talk about these tapes, now this person is already talking about electronic tapes which came later, originally it was paper tapes, uh, but you see the experience these traders had with it uh, of something running across of speed and of life, a life tape, that the market had a rhythm, the market was running, the market was a flow, the market was a process. Hmm? And that process was present. You had it in front of you. That's what this technology did for market participants. You also could see the price differentials, how the price changed over time. So if you're a physicist, you start to think in terms of differences between prices rather than one price at a time. And this thinking in terms of differences, always comparing to the before and expecting the next, is uh, very uh, um, uh, typical for financial markets. Of course, you saw that also represented in movies, that people look at the tape. Uh, and why I put this up there is because you can see that people started watching the tape all the time. Watching the tape was watching the market. So you get a regime of attention, to pay attention to the tape. Not that they didn't try to do that before, but they could only do it in a very fragmented fashion. At some point, they had to wait for, for uh, um, you know, the horses to bring the information to another place. Uh, and then when they had the telegraph, it was also much more complicated. But with the ticker, it was less complicated, and you had that running tape. So what did the ticker do, really? I said there's this beginning regime of attention that pretty much within 10 years led to a new um, uh, community of practice, and if you wish a new epistemic community, that of technical analysis, because people started to take the numbers on this tape, combine them differently, and look at how much had been cumulatively traded when, uh, and how did that change, and a whole new profession of analysts, technical analysts, emerged within 10 to 15 years after the ticker. Uh, you also get uh, 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 new stratification around the ticket. Stratification is uh, a sociological term, new neue Schichten. You get people who have the ticker, uh, and, 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 and corporations and, and exchanges who had the ticker and those who had not. And the ones who had, did not have the ticker became disadvantaged. So everyone tried to have the ticker and tried to prevent others to, from having the ticker. So that sort, of, that sort of differentiation had not been there in the same way before, but it was there then. And you get a form of 
expanded boundaries. It was not yet a completely global universe, but you know the boundaries expanded from New York to Boston and then to Europe, from London to New York, uh, and to Paris and to Frankfurt and so on and so forth. So you get in tendency a global horizon with the ticker. Now let's look at the scopic stage. The scopic stage is, you just have to look at it. What I call scopes are these technologies, whole systems of things, uh, hardware and software, obviously, that is associated with the computer. Now, the computer, uh, of course, implied connections between places, between trading floors, but when you go on a trading floor as an anthropologist, uh, uh, as someone who does ethnography, who watches what goes on in social life, you are struck by the screens and not by the connections between screens because the screens are what dominates the trading floor and what traders look at. At least four screens, very often six screens, and now with algorithms, uh, even more than six, uh, uh, eight screens or ten screens. So the screens are not disappearing. You have that face-to-screen arrangement, not a face-to-face -face arrangement, not human-to-human, face-to-screen, uh, that, that was there in Oliver's presentation. And you have the same attention, uh, only it's not at killing things directly, but it's at, at, at the graphs and material on the screen. Um, the, uh, there were preceding technologies on trading floors, so-called big sheets, a bit like this thing we have over here, this screen, but made out of paper, and people had to, uh, on the paper, insert the prices they were interested in. Uh, but in 1973, and there are other things going on at the same time about which we heard yesterday, for example, the end of the Bretton Woods systems in 1971, in 73, the technology called Monitor uh, uh, um, was in place, had been developed, and this technology um, uh, was um, uh, a bit like the ticker, but it was a screen technology, electronic, and it had a lot more information on it. It's aptly called Monitor because this thing, the screen watches, sort of watches the market, monitors what goes on in the market. Uh, it, it didn't have action capability. You couldn't trade through the screen. You got that about 10 years later, eight years later in 1981. And once you had the action capability, uh, this, these screen technologies went live. So something is happening here. Uh, went live um, in um, 145 um, uh, institutions in nine countries within a year or so. So everyone got to have this technology. <coughs> And here is some numbers from 2012 about how many of the terminals worldwide, Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters terminals, are in place. The two companies dominate the picture. Uh, you, of course, also had other things going on at the same time, like deregulation that explained the takeoff of these financial markets. We can talk about that uh, in the discussion if you're interested in that. So what is a scope and why do I use the notion scope? What's a scoping mechanism? A scope is really an instrument for seeing and observing. And what these screens are doing, they are like a huge observer in the center of these markets, looking at the market. Uh, but they're also, at the same time, uh, quite a cerebral technology, if you wish. 
uh, one that's a bit like a, um, a brain, because they're very reflexive. So as you trade, your trading is immediately also visualized on the screen, because you trade through the screen and with the screen. You can see yourself acting on screen while you are doing it. It's instantly visiting, visible. And you are, of course, also sourcing participants for information. Firms like Reuters and others and Bloomberg do that all the time. Traders are asked questions. That's projected on screen. Uh, so it's a very reflexive technology, and it's not at all like the steam engine, which you cannot call reflexive, I suppose. It's projecting something to an audience. And this projection is important because the audience the audience is everyone who watches the screen. And these are traders in the first place, but it's also very often investors. They start to respond to the reflected and presented reality on screen uh, rather than to anything else. And it's augmenting because it's offering a lot more information <laughs> then you would, for example, have gotten through the ticker, or would, then you would be able to get through uh, direct ties with other people. So it brings all this together. That's why I call it a presenting. It presents everything in one place. Uh, and um, 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 I call this technological media, uh, and not just technology, uh, because they are not simply a link or connection between participants, but they are actively shaping what goes on through the software that's combined with the monitors. Uh, there is an audience, everyone watching, you know, in a market, the traders are also the audience of what's on screen. So you have an audience relationship here, uh, and you have a particular type of coordination, which is a tele-coordination and not a network coordination. Uh, uh, and the whole thing is quite sensory, sinnlich in German, uh, because uh, what's on screen, it has colors, it has sounds, it's dramaturgically constructed. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, on some level, it's like these games, which are heavily dramaturgical and heavily, um, uh, very much a performance in addition to uh, 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 creating some information. So it's much more than a technology. Um, the, what, you, what you have with this transition to the scopic sphere is that you move from piping to beaming. Now, when you have a network, uh, when you have a network, you really have nodes and pipes between the nodes. And the pipes must not leak. Because if the pipe leaks, if they let out information, it's no longer, strictly speaking, a network. <laughs> the information is then everywhere. But you have these linkages, and you need to create these linkages. It's social relation-based. Now, I'm not talking about infrastructure here. I'm talking about the behavioral dimension and the actual trading. The infrastructure might remain a network. So there are underwater pipes from Europe to the US, for example, that stay in place before the satellite connections. But 
um, the, the market was, before they had these scopic technologies, network-based. The traders had to call, the phone is a network technology. They had to call someone up in London if they were in Berlin. Berlin was never important in terms of financial markets. Let's say if they were in Frankfurt, call someone up in London and say, do you want to trade? What is your price? They had to cultivate these connections. Uh, all that uh, speaks for these markets having been a network markets, and when you ask all the traders, they talk about it that way. Networks are always exclusionary, so there's some people who are connected and others who are not connected. Uh, and they are adapted to particular technologies, in my view, like the telephone. When you have the screen technologies, you're beaming the same information to everyone who has the monitors and the monitors have been leased by every bank that is engaged in this sort of tra trading. You don't need social relations. You have social relations for some purposes. Maybe the traders would have four or five people worldwide whom they trust and talk to and so on and so forth. But when you can scope it, you don't have to network it. So that's what happens. It's a major change, and it's an effect of computerization. Uh, of course, uh, the transition, transition to scopes also afforded something that's close to what uh, in chemistry and in other natural sciences called pick and place. Uh, you have a pick and place architecture. You have an architecture in place on which you can put progressively, successively, all kinds of functions. And that's what happened. For example, brokerage, uh, you originally uh, may have had to go to some broker to find out what the prices are, but you have an electronic broker on screen. You don't need an exchange. The whole function of the exchange, the matching function, let's say if exchanges have other functions too, but the matching function is on screen. It's an electronic broker on screen. <laughs> that just means that you see the prices on which you can trade and they are constantly changing. You have conversational windows on screen, so you can con conduct your conversations that you previously conducted via the phone through the screen. You also have bulletin boards giving you other sorts of information uh, that you don't get through conversations. You have news and information feeds, you have accounting capacities, and you have media feature. All of that is progressively placed on screen, picked and placed on screen. And you don't need an outside. No outside is relevant anymore because everything and much more than everything, you never leave a trading floor like that without being better informed about everything in the world than you could otherwise be. I always read the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal before going on a trading floor, but none of that stuff, they were always much further <laughs> advanced and much more precise things there, and many more things there than I could read in any newspaper. So uh, with, this second uh, with this second transition, you get sort of a media institution, if you wish. Uh, the whole thing, I said 145 um, uh, trading floors within one year in nine countries, and then very quickly, it was all countries. So it was a unified, it became a unified global system of interbank trading. Uh, I'm talking here mainly about professional trading and not uh, at all about late trading or day trading. 
you have a fully developed regime of attention and perception. There is no survival in such a market without you being informed of these screens all day long and longer. At night, you have a little Reuters screen at your bedside. So uh, it's a complete regime of attention that involves the organization interaction and the neurophysiological level. Uh, it is completely mediatized in the sense of being the market narrated and executed, played, so to speak, on screen, playing out on screen with audience effects and all of that. And it's um, a flow market. It flows, but now it flows in real time. With the ticker, you had a historical flow of the market. Now you have a market flowing in real time in front of you while you are doing it in this reflexive way. So uh, it's an attempted and achieved complete synchronization worldwide. Let's see what I have next. So analytic time. The time, of course, there is always the time, uh, the, the time, uh, our clock time in the background of things. Uh, and we also differentiate when we talk about time, existential time, that is the experience time. The experience time is something else. But what you have here is analytic time, meaning look at that. So the time that's relevant is how quickly the things changed on screen, change on screen. That's, of course, simulated, but uh, it's even faster now. You saw that last night in the exhibition when you saw the algorithmic trading. That's the sort of time you have to uh, be responsive to as a trader. That's the sort of time, and the traders manage to become responsive to that time uh, because they have to take into account what changes happen and how to react immediately. It became much faster than before, uh, and it was so fast that, for example, in the beginning, I couldn't see that they had traded. I, I thought, they, okay, they were staring at the screen and there were some hand movements. I couldn't see what they had done. Uh, so, uh, but it also involves that complete synchronization between the trader's body and the market. Um, uh, and it involves synchronization between time zones, all major three time zones. Uh, and it uh, involves a synchronization of all institutional traders in that market, all institutions worldwide. So here is the time zone thing. The market moves. Uh, it moves across time. Uh, it moves from Europe to New York. It moves to Tokyo. It starts again. And it's the same market. And there are transitions between that market, between the time zones. You could say much more about that. But the market is one continuous thing. And globality doesn't mean every, all, it's not territorial. It doesn't mean all territories. It means all major time zones, and only those. It doesn't mean South Africa. It doesn't mean Alaska. But it means the three major time zones. That's what global means. So the synchronization of trader and market might be interesting to some of you because it brings up the body again. Um, the observation of the market on screen is not just a mental state. Uh, it's a felt physical connectedness. The traders feel the market. Uh, it's for them a flow experience, if you know Chishen Michali and his psychology of flow experience. Uh, it's a complete bodily engrossment and involvement in the market. You cannot, your attention cannot be somewhere else while you are in that situation and need to respond to the market. Uh, and you also see a specialized vocabulary 
Uh, I have some terms here that refer to when a trader gets hit, uh, loses money. Then the vocabulary is like this here. I got shafted, I got bent over, I got raped. It's a very sexual vocabulary. It's you know, expressing the feeling, I got killed, I got hammered, expressing the, the feeling traders have when this happens to them. Uh, and you can associate that, I think, with what I might call a technological consciousness. That would mean a, a consciousness that's, that's formed by and shaped by, it's not completely constituted by, that can never be the case, but shaped by the technology with which you work. Uh, and this can be linked to what uh, neurophysiologists distinguish between implicit and explicit processing in our brain. There's an implicit processing system. They are fairly unanimous about that. Though, of course, neurophysiology is not at the end of the story of understanding the brain, but that's the state of things right now. The distinction between explicit processing in our brains, which is done prefrontally. I think about it. You know, it's verbalizable, it's rule-based, it's accessible to conscious awareness. It's explicit processing. And then there is implicit processing. It's much more skill-based. The content of my processing is not verbalizable, and it's inaccessible to conscious awareness. And um, now, uh, different performance systems, different work systems, let's say, recruit and develop different cognitive circuits. Sociology doesn't really need to develop implicit processing <laughs> that much, except when you are an ethnographer. Then you need to pay attention, and, and somehow you, are, you yourself as a processor, as an observer, do something, you know, analyze something without knowing that you're doing it. But most of the time we have enough time. These people, of course, <laughs> don't have any time. Uh, and we can only understand what they are doing when we take into account the neural level, not just the level of what they think and say. Because when we ask them, how do you trade? They say, well, I trade out of the seat of my pants. I don't know how I trade. I, in, I do it intuitively. I just know how to do it. You know, it's an immediate conversation stopper because they are not disclosing any information to you with which you can do anything any further as a social scientist. But when you go to neurophysiology, you can see that what is happening very likely is that they are using their implicit processing system. And what I would have thought originally is when you have complex tasks, and trading is a complex task, then you do that prefrontally, you know, you involve your thinking more, but it's just the other way around, because the explicit system, the prefrontal thinking, has working memory limitations. You can only take about four to six variables into account at that time with your explicit system, says neurophysiology. And it makes sense, because think of learning how to play uh, tennis or something. You know, All the instructions you get, there is no way you can translate them into practice. You give up on that. You do one thing at a time, and you do the five others wrongly. So you learn it in an analogic, analogical way. And that's how they learn trading. 
the implicit system is not capacity limited. So if it's 10 variables you need to somehow configuratively have in your mind and respond to when you process things, then that's fine for the implicit system. You don't know how you're doing it and what you're doing, but you learn how to do it with your implicit system. Uh, so this acquisition of such skills is pretty implicit and the implicit system is more efficient than the explicit system. I'm sorry to say, but that's what it is. So, um, the, uh, however, if these traders use their implicit system and must use the implicit system to survive with a fastly moving market and to make the right choices without thinking, so it's not really decision making because they are not having any deliberations going on, it's far too fast. But if you do that, you also have uh, phenomenological subtractions in the sense that certain tasks are out of your awareness. You don't, for example, whether the computer works or not and how it works is completely outside their interest and awareness. If there is a problem with the computer, within seconds there's someone on the trading floor helping them. And they just lean back and say, I have no idea, I don't care. Get it done, do it for me, give me a new computer. You know, solve the problem. They don't let the, they cannot uh, uh, devote um, any um, attention to things like the working of the computer. Task subtractions, implications sub are subtracted. What the implications of what they're doing, not doing is not on their mind. Well, it has to be on their mind, and it's not on their mind, but in their brain, I should say. Uh, what has to be on their brain is how to respond to the market correctly now so that you don't lose money because they, with every move they may be losing money and that losing may cost them their job. Now content subtraction and there are also social moral subtractions. So the inability uh, of understanding between Wall Street and Main Street also has to do, it is not the only explanation, I'm sure, but it also has to do with these tasks, that the task itself of trading such that you are not killed hmm, uh, is consuming all of your attention at every moment of the day, and you can't really think of other things. Now we move to the third stage, and the third stage uh, looks a little different. It, it, you see here, uh, you know, symbolically represented servers, and you see the trading screens have developed into a complete surround. And that's the algorithmic stage, algorithmic trading, the third disruptive technological um, um, invention in these markets. You now get not one platform and this complete synchronization, we didn't talk about platforms, but I mentioned, just mentioned it here, but multiple platforms, and you get new traders. You get algorithms who trade. The algorithms are not just trading, they're also data managing, sorting, comparing, collecting, but they can also read signals, they can read. This generate statistics, they generate analytics, and so on and so forth. You get Externalized proprietary desks that had been part of the trading floor are now external firms. So a rearrangement of the firms, a, a complete um, a change of the trading profession because algorithms do much of the trading but not all of the trading. And you get new turbulences. You get, for example, what you might call speed storms, these flash crashes that occur all the time. You know, it's like a 
It's like a, a, you are in a new time world, and this time world has different kinds of time-related um, turbulences and storms. So um, um, uh, you get, and, and I, I'm now uh, summarizing this ahead of time, with the algorithms, uh, a complete change of the profession. You get the rise of proprietary trading firms, high-frequency trading firms that hadn't been in place before at all. They cannot be there without algorithms. Uh, the role of human traders changes by and large. They begin to monitor what the algorithms are doing. They are doing some sort of curating, but they are not trading any longer. Now, that holds mainly for the stock market, where 50 to 60 percent algorithm, algorithm traded. In the currency markets, it's still a lower percentage, 30 to 40 percent, but still, it's a large percentage. So what would happen, for example, in a firm that human traders would trade everything above either $10 million or $50 million in one trade, that's usually one trade, not the whole day, uh, uh, and algorithms would do all the rest. Uh, so you get also changes of practice, and you've seen those. They have been, uh, 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 we talked about it yesterday late. Uh, Beate and Oliver talked about it, and um, 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 Brian talked about it. Ch changes of practice, much less, on some level, less communication, certainly on the trading floor, but not their chat rooms in, in, instead. Uh, trading becomes invisible, only the effects are visible. But you also get uh, two things that I would like to talk a little more about. Um, a, a complete temporal expansion of the social world by another temporal dimension. The temporal dimension in which algorithms can thrive and that, that constitutes the universe for algorithms. And you get a whole vocabulary that comes with that, like low latency, high frequency ranges, inventory cycle, quote life. These are all temporal terms referring to algorithms. Algorithmic time has to be reckoned with. It has to be taken into account. Uh, and you get the question of, of the integration of these non-human actors, these synthetic actors. Algorithms are like robots, if you wish, but they are not physical robots. They don't walk on the floor like a, a vacuum cleaner. So they are not physical robots, but they are robotic. And to call them robots is something the natives also do. And the question is, of course, are they integrated into the social world or not? Are they just an instrument, or what do we do with them? Uh, and that question uh, 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 brings me to asking, what is an algorithm? You can treat algorithms in different ways. On some level, uh, they have a statistical quantitative core. And you can conceptualize them in terms of these theories that lie behind the algorithms. Then you're conceptualizing numbers. Uh, but they are also programs that act. They are software agents. And then you have to conceptualize what is a software agent. They act like a human beings. You encounter them like an asset trader. You have to strategically interact with the algorithm if you are a human trader. So you cannot deny them actorship. No? That, that doesn't make any sense, because that's how you encounter them. Uh, and um, of course, uh, they also may assist you 
or they may be strategic counterparties for you. In any case, you have to conceptualize the interaction between algorithms and humans. And that is a major problem. I don't want to go into that completely. But I do want to say, when you look at the um, way algorithms are de described in the technical literature and in the trading literature, I'm not talking about uh, uh, social science journals or anthropology journals. I'm talking about the technical literature. Then the human actors are described with these categories I have here, and the algorithms described with other categories. Uh, uh, but the main thing I want to turn your attention to is that the human actors, of course, compared to algorithms, even skilled traders are slow, and algorithms have the advantage of speed as one of their main advantages. So let's look at one of these speed turbulences we had, uh, because that brings me to a cultural dimension, which I want to open up uh, before I close a little more, looking at, on the one hand, trading itself, and then looking at economists. Um, uh, what is the sort of crash that occurs uh, when you have algorithmic trading? It looks like that. You know, it's, It looks like that. A more schematic ren rendering is like this. Uh, on May 6, 2010, we had the first major flash crash uh, that became uh, a uh, narrated until now, an in an event until now, and not fully clarified until now, and it's we have 2016. So this was 2010. So um, um, here is an interpretation inserted. This comes from uh, 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 the Wall Street Journal uh, that's already blaming the regulatory uh, changes, and this is not unwarranted in this case. The regulatory changes went in favor of speeding up trading uh, in the interest of investors, but then you, with speeding up trading, you created algorithms and you created this sort of phenomenon. What's the flash crash? The Dow Jones plunged almost 1,000 points before recovering, Investors saw nearly one trillion of value, again, in German that would be an a billion, uh, erased from the US stocks in minutes. All was happening within 13 minutes. And then there was a 26 minutes recovery to normal and orderly trading. Um, the um, whole thing led to a trading stop. The uh, trading was stopped. You couldn't trade for a few minutes before the thing started to recover. But what led to the trading stop was a breakdown of the technology. And that's interesting to keep in mind. The technology could no longer cope with what's going on. So uh, we associate a crash with disorderliness, with disappearance of the market of liquidity, especially uh, the, the native terms are break, the terms you find in the literature, collapse, market plummeting, point decline, crisis, panic, shocking, terrifying, traumatic, gut-wrenching, dramatic. These are the terms. But there are interaction order features of the flash crash I can't go into that here, we don't have the time, but I did look at the data the uh, Security and Exchange Commission that investigated the data. You can't do that by ethnography. You have to have the data from all trading and to look at these data. And that the data have been available because the Security and Exchange Commission investigated the crash for several years. 
uh, and there have been analysis of what is in the data. And when you look at the data, you see that the crash was actually not much of a crash. It was trading all the way through. Hmm? They traded throughout the crash, except for the two, two or three minutes when trading was stopped. There were repairs attempted by all parties. So if you had you know, a price of a good going in one direction, then fundamental, the price of a commodity plummeting, for example, then fundamental traders went in and said, ah, that's a good opportunity to trade, you know, a bot, therefore correcting the fall of the price. So there are all kinds of repairs going on in the interaction between trading parties, not from the outside, not from the top, but the parties themselves taking advantage of the situation, repaired, but they also accelerated the crash to some degree. This crash now, the plummeting of prices is being meant. Um, uh, the, the order that existed was in time, not in place, in temporal strategies, in jumping in now, in jumping out now, in doing this then, not there, waiting a moment or not waiting a moment. So it's a temporal order. Uh, and, um, and as I said before, uh, the um, interaction in markets needs that technology to work, and that technology is complicated, and there's a lot of it involved. <laughs> and it broke down. It could not give the correct prices anymore. There was too much trading. There was not no trading. There was too much trading. It didn't have the correct price. It has delayed price data on screen, and therefore you, you were in trouble. Uh, the crash also had the feature of extensions beyond the situation. So when you have an event in social reality, that event is extended beyond the situation through narratives, through media, through investigations, through all kinds of things. And as I said before, that narrative extension can take years and years and years. Think of the Titanic. It's still extended to, until today, the disaster of the Titanic, narratively. But you also get something that we could call economic ritualization. So here I show you uh, the trading volume on that day. The trading volume during the flash crash was eight times the regular volume. So it was much more trading. It was not less trading. It was no breakdown of trading. There were all these narrative extensions of the crash. Uh, the SEC, the CFTC, the NANEC scientific papers, the British Government Office for Science, the Foresight Report, BIS, Deutsche Bank, and so on and so forth, uh, created a trail of looking at the flash crash with data, investigating that and making sense of it. There were criminal investigations. One is still going on, or several are still going on, and the general public is included in the flash crash through the book Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, which some of you may have read. If you haven't read it, it's a good read. So um, until now, we have many flash crashes. This was not the only one. It was just the one that sort of initiated the attention. Uh, uh, but all these flash crashes have one feature, and that feature is that you have these recoveries. It's not like an economic crisis. You know, you have a crash, but within minutes you have a recovery of the market. And in 2010, the full recovery occurred in 26 minutes, and these quotes come from investigators. The major equity in indexes and products rebounded, recovery 
most, if not all, of their losses. Liquidity was replenished. Uh, flash crash type events probably have little impact on markets' ability to allocate resources and risks. We had two flash crashes last year, two major ones with the same features. So uh, what do we do with an event that is so dramatic and so important and leaves such a long trail but doesn't really have any economic consequences. It's an interesting thing to ask. Huh? So uh, one interpretation I offer you, and you might not agree with that, but I offer it, it's sort of using the notion ritual in sociology. We have a notion ritual in the social sciences. It usually requires that people are co-present, a shared mutual awareness, a shared focus of attention, a common mood, but the result of a ritual going back to Durkheim a long time ago is that emotional energy and commitment, especially to a symbol, is renewed and you get something like solidarity out of the ritual. Like a, a marriage, for example. If a, a, you know, it's a ritual and if that marriage, these are the regular sort of rituals, if it's properly celebrated, then you get a renewal of the symbol of the marriage, you get the solidarity between the people involved, and so on and so forth. Now, all these features were present during the flash crash, the co-presence. Everyone stared at the screen, probably standing and not sitting anymore. Uh, a shared focus of attention, mutual awareness, and a common mood. What is the symbol? in this case. Uh, what is the symbol? And one symbol we have in, in the cases of financial markets is certainly the market itself. So I asked all the traders in my own investigation what the market was for them, and I had a certain hypothesis that the market is all the others trading, it's all the people trading in the market. But their answer was somewhat off. It was not exactly that. The market is everything. It's a life form. It's a being in its own way. It's a greater being. It is not just a sum of market participants. It's not under control of anyone. These were the participants. For economists, by the way, the market is a solution to many problems. Uh, it's... Um, when you have crisis in a market, it's preventable by more market. Uh, it's not just the sum of market participants for economists either. It's rather a mechanism. The market is a mechanism that is not under control of anyone either. Uh, and it's an alternative mechanism other than a state, for example. Uh, and it's self-regulatory and distributed for economists, unlike the state. So there is a contrast in economic thinking between the state on, and the market, and I'll come back to that. Uh, here is one answer. What is the market for you? Is it the price action, or is it individual participants, or what? Everything, everything, without hesitation, you know. Everything, I wondered what he means, the information. Everything. You know, just everything is the market. What do you do with that? I thought that was a very disappointing answer. What, what does he mean by, and how does this amorphous thing of everything, you know, exert such an attraction so that you remain so committed to it? Uh, but what they mean, perhaps, is everything that's significant, all that matters. So that's a symbol, too. It's not just a reality, an instrumental reality making money or uh, uh, achieving credit, it's at the same time a symbol. So I think we could look at things like these crashes 
as um, economic rituals, if you wish, because they have no economic, real economic effect. If you do have that full recovery, and that's a claim the analysts using the data make, not I make, if you have that full recovery, obviously you had no clear economic function. But, um, you know, ritualization means that something is crystallized in situation of most intense, most highly charged market interactions, maybe, and that will be breakdowns and crashes. These are the most highly charged interactions in market. Uh, and these sorts of situations do lead to large-scale mobilization and the fuel change, and they may shape new structures that are then maybe imposed from the outside on markets or created from the inside in markets. So that's the effect of some of these things. But they also may generate you know, a lot of powerful emotional energy and a level of integration, a, a, a lot of powerful emotional energy that is aligned again with the market because the market symbol is maintained. You, know, you, have, you did not lose the market. <laughs> came back, it was there, it survived, and a level of integration of some of these relevant actors, which is algorithms. We have a problem with algorithms. We need to know what to do with them. And this needing to know what to do with algorithms cannot be something general, uh, relevant for each and everything in the same way. You know. What an algorithm does for flying, when we fly, and they do a lot for flying, is completely different from what they do in financial markets. Uh, we don't yet encounter them as pilots and as stewardesses in a flight. We might at some point, but not yet. But the traders encounter them. And so I think these rituals also have the effect of upholding the market uh, as a collective entity, uh, that includes that phenomenologically other the algorithm for which the new structures are created uh, and that shape some changes adapted to algorithms in these markets. So this is an, an offer uh, I give you with which you might not agree. Now I want to turn before closing, and it's not much longer now, I wanted to turn back to economists for a while uh, because I had this question Brian asked me about the epistemic, you know, are these epistemic communities? And they are not epistemic communities in a traditional sense, but they are real epistemic communities heavily involved in markets. And these epistemic communities are economists. And the economists also believe in markets, almost like a symbol. It's not, the economists here again may say this is, crazy or idiotic, but I give you some examples of how they believe in market. What I mean, I don't mean anything metaphorical. I mean, for example, that Schiller, who doesn't count as a, you know, Friedman type of uh, uh, economist as a right, just on the right, just the opposite, in 2008, in the middle of the financial crisis, published a book in which he recommended that the key to the subprime solution to preventing future crises like the current one, as well as after effects, is democratizing finance. And democratizing finance, meaning extending the application of sound financial principles to a larger and larger segment of society and using all the modern technology at our disposal to achieve the goal. What he means 
what he meant, and what is now implemented, by the way, is that we should create a more functional housing futures market. So the solution to the crisis is more market, not less market, for economists. Economists are the experts on these things. <coughs> they, their belief in markets is such that they see the solution, even when they are sort of on the left, the solution to problems in creating more markets. This argument is not a stupid argument. It's an argument you can fully follow. It's an argument that also says if you have a market, you will get analysts, you will get observers of the market. These observers will uh, put out reports. The reports will be read, for example, by the construction industry. The construction industry will watch in the market the price of futures. And you know, we watch it going up or it watch, is it watching it going down. It will react to that. It will react to that before a crisis hits. It will start short-selling things. It will stop building. Uh, it will, in reacting to the market uh, of futures, housing futures, prevent the crisis. That was his argument. And it involved a lot of analytics, analysis becoming important, information becoming important, observation becoming important, and this observation penetrating the others around the market and the investors, and that information being there before the crisis um, hits and uh, leads to the, what the economists then often call a correction. So you, it was not at all a stupid argument, but it remains internalistic to let's do more markets and then we will solve the problem. He also recommended that unemployment should be solved by replacing unemployment insurance as we have now by the state through private insurance plus a market on which the insurance hedges its risk. So again, the solution for unemployment was going in the direction of a market. And here I have another example to try and make understandable in cultural terms, if you wish, why there is this belief in market. Think, the, think of the environmental market. So when you have environmental pollution, I'm not going through the whole thing, just this, to, these two pictures, these two figures, I, uh, these two renderings I have here, the state can come into the picture and the state can punish, you know, punishing individual firms, punishing individuals, sanctioning, prescribing rules, and then if you don't comply by the rules, you are going to have a penalty and you might be dragged before court and there might be criminal charges. So that's the state way of acting. The state can also act in a in economic terms, more subtle way, it can create a tax and through the tax recover the costs of externalizing the pollution from the economic action. But the real best solution in these terms is really a market solution for the problem because it's the most flexible solution. It allows those firms that pollute, that have high costs for changing their technology in order to not pollute, um, to continue to pollute, they just have to buy pollution certificates. And the others who can change their technology easily and stop polluting easily uh, to sell their certificates such that uh, they don't pollute 
but, but those for whom it is very costly to pollute continue to pollute by buying these certificates. <laughs> the state is still in the picture because it has to regulate the whole thing, uh, and also the certificates that you can buy in order to pollute, that changes every year and it goes down over time. But in, in a sense for economists it's the most flexible solution but because if one firm creates all the pollution that's allowable in, this, in that year, so what? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. It, what matters is that all of the other firms benefit hmm, uh, by selling their uh, certificate and so on and so forth. Let's not go into this now because I just wanted to, I'm not recommending this, please. Also, there are good examples. The first examples of acid rain pollution worked very well. Now the examples don't work. I'm not recommending this. I'm saying that you have this contrast for economists very often between the states and the market. Uh, the market has become an, an agent for an expanding series of things, for welfare, for efficiency. McLuhan talked about excess. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the nation state is also an agent for the goals of nation state society, but it requires legitimation. Legitimation goes through democratic election, uh, and the means are regulation, taxation, and an appeal to virtue in a way. In the market case, you don't appeal to virtue, you appeal to promise. The promise of welfare, the promise of gain, the promise of economic growth is a promise of welfare. It's not a negative thing, it's a positive thing. Uh, but there is this contrast between a logic of virtue and a logic of promise. Uh, you can see in the left side the paternalistic reasoning you know, of, an, of an earlier time and also of what we, we continue to have, of course. Um, uh, where the target is the individual and the corporate actor. The individual has to behave, the corporate actor has to behave, the state regulates. Uh, but for the economic view, the target is more the problem. Can I solve the problem with a market? You know, regardless of whether the individual sins or doesn't sin. This is not really my problem. My problem is not virtue. My problem is... I think this is a bit of a fundamental thing one has to realize that you can have professions for whom virtue is not the main goal. And if that, the goal is problem solving. And therefore you can, you can veer in directions where the rest of society would think, well, that's unfair, that's not good, it may not, good, it may not be good in a Christian sense, but it solves the problem. You know. This is a way of thinking I'm describing and uh, claiming and not um, something I uh, uh, personally uh, would, um, um, would endorse. I'm just trying to see how is it possible that the whole profession thinks that way. Now, there is one more point maybe on a bit on the side, but I wanted to at least insert it. With the sort of... Uh, um, temporal extension, extension of temporality in the social world through algorithms, um, you also have desynchronizations. For example, you have desynchronizations between law uh, and what, uh, what uh, these markets do. 
but you have also a lot of problems associated and questions associated with law, which are quite interesting. So the, the obvious answer would be the law functions. It regulates according to bureaucratic legitimatory time. <coughs> it has its procedures. It has to follow the procedures. They take time. And these markets, for example, try to avoid that, not, not just because they don't like it, but because it takes too much time. I cannot I have to self-regulate in a market that, that's thinking in terms of nanoseconds. I can't wait for the law to, to do that for me. I wouldn't have a market. So that would be the differences between kinds of time in kinds of areas would be one obvious answer. But it's also the case that in the legal area, especially in the United States, there is that deference that's on some way unexplicable delay. For example, the SEC examined the flash crash for since the beginning. Within six months, they had a report. It was very fast, actually. But they continued to examine it. They had input uh, responses to this report that make them aware of additional information they should take into account. It took them five years to respond to that. Why does it take them five years? Why are there these inexplicable delays in the legal system that no longer have to do with bureaucratic time or legitimatory time? They have to do with something else. What is it they have to do with? So, of course, you could say there is, an, there is a revolving door between Wall Street and Washington. You know, things are prevented, but it's not always clear that they are prevented. Uh, governance also has a lot of uncertainty and risk. There are risks of governing. If you regulate the market in the wrong way, you are in economic trouble. <laughs> Or the rest of society can blame you to be in economic trouble because of that. And it's not completely unwarranted according to the professional communities have an impact on that. So government also has a risk and uncertainty problem, not just markets. Uh, and so I, I don't really have the answer for that. I just want to make you aware that we cannot just say, well, there is legal time, which is bureaucratic time, and then there is market time, which is today algorithmic time, and there is a universe between the two. That's not just the answer. There is unexplicable deference in the legal system that needs to be investigated in, term, in these terms for once, and not just in terms of simply interest. Society, of course, runs on a different sort of time, very often on a sort of narrative time that you find in the media, not just bu not bureaucratic time, but Again, a different time, but not algorithmic time. In any case, um, I wanted to maybe sum things up a little bit by saying that when you look at these three uh, techn disruptive technologies that, that the ticker dominating for about 100 years, then the scopic systems dominating for about 30 years in these markets, and now algorithms starting to dominate, not dominating everywhere, but starting to dominate, uh, you, do, you can say that technology drives, enhances, and shapes. Not technology is deterministic, I would object to that, but it certainly has, it certainly has effects that are relevant. 
um, you move in these markets from complete desynchronization, the sort of local, relatively local markets you had before the ticker, to uh, complete synchronization during the last 30 years before algorithms and multiple platform came into the pictures. And now you have a new form of desynchronization again, not becoming local, but becoming diversified in terms of logics and uh, platforms and trading and arbitrage, for example, becomes possible again, whereas it had not been possible in foreign exchange markets for a number of years while this was a completely unified global market. It's no longer such a unified market. Uh, all levels are involved in these synchronizations and desynchronizations, especially also the body of the actors, of the, when they are human actors, the traders, the organization, the profession. The professions change with all of these technologies, the law, and symbols are involved in it. It's not just a one-level thing. Um, but the synchronizations and desynchronizations, the globality and non-globality, and even the temporal dimensions are constructed, and therefore they can be deconstructed. The technospheres are certainly also, in this case, time spheres. You can see how the <coughs> temporalities of the social world change in these domains, and all of that is domain-specific. So we can't really talk algorithms or technology across domains and make intelligent observations. It seems to me that it's relatively specific to certain areas. So I leave you with this picture, and I am happy to take answer, try and answer, try and respond to questions you may have. Thank you very much.